Hello, and welcome to the Tales of a Traveling Trainer podcast. As always, this is not meant to be individually prescriptive, but educational and entertaining. Today, I'll be speaking with Coach Ashley Thomas. Ash actually comes from England, and he played semi-professional football there for about 10 years. We know that as soccer. He also competed in the Epic Series in 2017 in the Strongman Division and won. In his 30s, he began Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and in 2019, he won gold at the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation in Vegas. Ash has a long list of certifications and education, but today we'll be focusing on functional range conditioning and his experience as a kin stretch instructor. Enjoy. I have Ash on the line. Ash, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Sarah. How are you today? I am awesome. Thank you for joining the call. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm really excited to get into it. So I wanted to start kind of with how did you initially get into coaching strength and conditioning field? Because you've been doing it for over a decade now, right? Yes. Yeah. Over 10 years. Why? That's crazy. So how, uh, how did that kind of journey get started? This is, a, this is always a funny one for me when I tell people because uh, I remember watching the movie Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it started yeah. with Predator. And uh, I'm sure as many, uh, many males born in the 80s could attest to just being in absolute awe of this, this guy on the, on the TV. And uh, I remember just thinking, I want to look like this guy. Um, <laughs> And then I just kind of became obsessed with Schwarzenegger and, and so did my friends really. And then we just, it just start, started as, you know, training in your bedroom, doing your concentration curls every night, um, your sit-ups every single night of the week. And it just kind of escalated from there really. And then as I, that was right about, you know, the age of probably 12, 13, where I started to actually lift dumbbells. Mm-hmm. And then, as I got older and started to learn more about training, went through the whole uh, bro training, you know, chest chest on Mondays, chest on Tuesdays, chest on Wednesdays. <laughs> uh, and then as I, I, I started training in a, a small gym in Cheltenham, England, called Reach Fitness, and there was a, a probably four or five really, really great trainers there, um, coaches, and they just trained everybody differently to what I'd ever seen. And then I, I actually contacted one of the guys and he wrote me a program and I started to do squats and s- split squats. And I was like, what on earth is this stuff? You know, who trains legs? Um, <laughs> I always thought, you know, I played football, real, real football. I always thought that uh, because I ran around a lot, I didn't need to do any lower body training. So I just got exposed to this completely different style of training and it just it just fascinated me and and blew my mind and I kind of dug deeper into that and um actually ended up doing my my personal training qualification through that gym uh over over a period of time which involved a lot of case studies a lot of actually training people um which I'm I'm very grateful for now because they actually observed you training people in a gym environment as opposed to it just being theoretical base work, you know, you can, you could probably do an online certification now over a weekend and you're a trainer, but I don't think it, it exposes you to uh, 
the gym floor and, and what you're going to come up with. So, yeah, basically watching other coaches coach and, and having a passion for it myself and thinking I would like to do that. And then it just it just escalated from there, really. And then the, the, the thirst for knowledge just evolved and it was uh, it's been a roller coaster ever since. Awesome. So a little bit later on, I've noticed now your focus is very much kin stretch and functional range conditioning. So for people who don't know, can you tell me what that is? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So uh, functional range conditioning, uh, you'll probably hear it uh, called FRC, is part of the functional range systems created by Dr. Andrea Spina. And mm-hmm. it is a evidence science-based system that allows you to expand usable ranges of motion. So how I explain this to people is that, you know, people have this obsession of being flexible, okay? And you, you see, oh, you always hear people say, oh, I wish I was more flexible. And, and it's like, what does that mean to you? Like, oh, I'm, you know, I'd love to be able to get, to get my leg over my head or, and it's, that's cool, but why do you want that? Why do you feel like you need that? And I, I, I don't really think that a lot of people know the difference between mobility and flexibility. And mobility really, if I, the simple term is usable flexibility. So you have strength at your end range. So some people who, can, who are super flexible aren't actually particularly strong at those end ranges. And they don't actually have a lot of use for that flexibility. Um, so the more mobile you can make someone, uh, you're going to give them more movement capacity, um, more options, more training options, uh, to do what they love. You know, there's a, there's a common misconception that you should just train mobility or you should just do this or you should just do that. But it, it all, all boils down to me that the more movement capacity I can give someone, the more they can do the things they love to do, whether that is yoga, uh, netball playing with their grandkids or for some of the people I train, they just want to wake up in the morning and not hurt, you know, <laughs> not, not spend 10 minutes straightening their spine because their back's so stiff. So it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very scientific based system, but the rewards it gives people are, are phenomenal. And kin stretch itself is actually the, the functional range conditioning principles in a group setting. So, I could hold, I teach kin stretch classes locally and I could have anyone come in off the street and they could take my kin stretch class. And during the first 10, 20 minutes, when we're going through our controlled articular rotations, the cars, I can actually assess someone and watch them. And I'm going to have a pretty good idea how their body moves because of what I've learned and the people I've learned for, I've got a different a completely different lens for movement now in which, in which I observe people. Um, because as you know, anytime you, you coach anyone, you want to assess them before you, before you do any kind of training with people. Um, because <clears throat> our, yeah. yeah, because our, our number one job in this industry is, is that people do not get hurt. Um, you, you can, you can wrap, you can wrap it in any way you like. Um, you know, I'm a performance coach or I'm a strength and conditioning coach or I'm a fat loss expert. But the number one rule is don't hurt people. You know, if someone comes to you and they end up getting hurt on your watch, that's that's your fault. So I think 
as you know, assess, assessing is first. That's what we want to do first before we train anyone. But the mm-hmm. beauty of this system, FRC is very much a kind of uh, more of a one-to-one system, I would say. So I would assess you, Sarah, and then I would coach you one-to-one. And we would go through what you know whatever I, I find that your body needed. Um, but kin stretch allows me to do that in a group setting. Uh, so it kind of... I can I can throw my mobility blanket over more people, I guess you could say, um, and safely, which is the most important thing. You know, it's interesting because I noticed especially, you know, women tend to be more flexible in the traditional sense in general. And so they're more apt to take these classes. But I think that you've seen a lot more crossover as far as males and females in the class. And I think um, your original interest uh, was in relation because you started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in your 30s, yes. right? Yes, I've been training for two years. So yeah, I was 36 when I started. So are you seeing it kind of infiltrate into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, like athletes as a specific sport specific kind of training? Or are you seeing it more in the general population? I'm definitely seeing it more in the general population. It's it's definitely becoming uh, a lot more popular and especially over the last year or two, it's really started to blow up, um, which is fantastic. Right. Um, So in terms of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, I wish that more uh, guys, especially people I train with um, saw the value in it. And it's hard because these guys don't have a lot of time. You know, they have families and kids and any spare time they Mm -hmm. have, they want to be on the mats rolling. So to tell them, hey, it would be a really good idea if you could dedicate a couple of hours a week to some really hard mobility training. They're just like, no, no, bro. <laughs> um, uh, that's, that's two or three hours I could be on the mats rolling. Um, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is very much a mentality of uh, more is better, for sure. You know, if... If guys only get four training sessions in a week, they're disappointed with themselves, you know? Yeah, definitely. When to the average person, if they got four strength workouts in or four yoga workouts in a week, they would be over the moon. You know, they would, if you, if you said that at the start of the year, Hey, you're going to average three to four sessions in the gym a week. People would like bite your hand off. But for some reason in, in the, in the jujitsu community, it's, uh, it's always, I only got three sessions in, or I only did four this week, you know? Um, so it's probably the single greatest training system that a jujitsu athlete could, could start, you know, could take up, uh, which would just instantly, uh, benefit their training because jiu-jitsu you just find yourself in such extreme end ranges and you're usually forced there by another individual uh who has absolutely <laughs> no idea what is going on internally in your body they're just forcing you there nine times out of ten as hard as they can so they have no idea that you only have 10 degrees of external rotation of your shoulder but mm-hmm. they're just going to crank on that bad boy um and it's even worse when you get into competitions. You know, competitions, it's, it's brutal. Like, guys are trying to pull your arm off. You know, if you've got good training partners, they will, they will know when you're at your end range and they'll know that. And you should probably tap yourself. You know, if you're in a bad position, in a bad submission, and you know, you know you're there, you should tap. Some guys don't, and that's when injuries occur. But um, 
sorry I digressed a little there but no it's it's definitely interesting and one thing like I even like to point out is knowing your end range is super important because with the system because you originally kind of introduced me to it and it was so interesting because I'm extremely hypermobile but what I didn't realize was there was a range where I got injured because even though I could get there I wasn't strong there so training in that range wasn't wasn't putting me in a good spot so I think it's really interesting especially for Brazilian jiu-jitsu where someone's literally forcing you to resist in a funky position and they're trying to throw you off so that's a really interesting principle about that sport specifically yeah I'm I'm glad you uh, mentioned that Sarah because there are a, a lot of really bendy flexible people out there that are walking around in agony Mm-hmm. or get injured a lot and people that don't quite know so much about this stuff will probably think well why is that person always injured they're super flexible but in fact some of the most flexible people in the world are walking around in as as much pain as the guy that can't move can't stand up straight because his spine his arm over his head exactly so you know you've got those probably two extreme ends of the spectrum so more mobility or more flex more useless flexibility isn't a good thing nine times out of ten because do you have adequate control of that end range and uh dr spina actually put a really good post up today about you know you need to control the range you have and maybe a little bit of a buffer for when you get forced into an end range I think there's a very big misconception of what we are actually trying to do with the functional range system. We're not trying to turn everyone into a contortionist or a Cirque du Soleil performer. Um, You just see some extreme examples of, of really good controlled mobility on social media. Most of the time, the stuff you see is on social media, right? Yeah. That's what gets all the attention. Yeah. So people think that that's what we're trying to do with everybody. It's not, it's like, yes, uh, my coach Hunter trains a bunch of Cirque du Soleil people who were in agony all the time. And he, they're in such end ranges their whole career. He has to teach them how to control that end range and how to be strong there. So they already have the flexibility. He just needs to get them strong there. Um, so it's expanding a little bit of uh, range or basically number one is learning to control what you have so that you don't get any worse. Okay. And that's where, uh, the controlled articular rotations come in. You're just expanding the rotational capacity of your joint every single morning. Are you going to expand range of motion using that? No, but you're more than likely not going to get any worse in that joint if you just express motion daily, you know, send information back and forth to the brain, get some nutrients into the joint, etc. But most of the people we train are regular people, you know, and we're just trying to give them a little bit more strength in the range they have. Um, do we want to expand some range? Do they need it is what, what you have to ask people. So to get back to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, do you need ranges of motion in jiu-jitsu? Definitely. Because guess what? If you can't go there yourself, someone else is going to put you there. That's a fact. <laughs> and I see guys that come in walk in the door and they can't even stand up straight, but yet you get them on the mat and they can somehow their foot will go over their head when they're laying on their back. It makes zero sense. 
but they've hmm. trained they've trained jujitsu for so long, their body can just go there, you know. But they yeah. couldn't actually do that themselves. So that's the difference between passive range of motion, you know, what someone can push you into, and active range of motion, what you actually have control of yourself. So we're always trying to close the gap between active and passive. So kind of circling back to one of the things you said, because you said, you know, the goal isn't for everyone to be a contortionist and just get more and more and more range of motion. Um, So you've trained a lot of interesting different types of um, athletic events. And one was the Epic Series, which you won in 2017. And that's has a lot of those components of, you know, needing to be needing to be mobile, needing to be strong, needing to be fast. Um, Maybe talk to us a little bit about how you trained for the Epic Series and for OCRs in general, and what are some trends you're seeing with athletes and how you train them, preparing them for that, and kind of managing all those variables? I'm, I'm glad you said variables because there are a ton of variables in those particular sports because if you take the Epic Series, for instance, you need to run an obstacle course as fast as possible, which involves tons of different disciplines you know you've got jumping climbing crawling um lateral movement uh there's uh, p- uh pulling vertical pulling um being able to get up over a wall and jump over the wall and then land safely um plus just repeated efforts uh over and over and over again whilst your heart rate is just you feel like your heart's going to come out out of your chest so you would do that, which is, you know, usually that course was around about anything from kind of 18 to 24 minutes of just red zoning, basically, uh, the whole time. And obviously you need to be able to run because there's laps and ca- uh, heavy carries as well. So just within that first section, there's multiple disciplines. Then you would get a rest and then you have to go and push press 155 pounds with chains over your head multiple times. Uh, plus deadlifting double your, nearly double your body weight, um, atlas stones, farmer's carries, climbing over another wall, uh, step-ups. So you've got one end of the spectrum where you need this repeatable burst of energy, uh, very kind of explosive but endurance at the same time. And then you go to the complete other end of the spectrum where you're trying to shift weight as fast as possible in kind of like the eight to 10 rep range. So it's a really, it's quite a difficult event to uh, train for. Um, I was lucky I had a a great coach program for me. So that'd be the first thing I would say is uh, get someone who knows what they're doing to program for you. Um, But believe it or not, the majority of my training was actually heavy. Um, I would spend a lot of time lifting heavy weights and heavy weights explosively uh, with lots of time under tension um, and then I would have a day where I practiced kind of keeping my heart rate high for mm-hmm. periods of time, which that's where like the assault bike came in, the, the, the nemesis, uh, sled work. And then uh, a really just I would just I used to call it, it's not very uh, technical, but I would just call it like the beat down day where yeah, you would just you would almost on the do the floor afterwards. Yeah, you'd almost do the circuit, but even harder. And then you would probably repeat it again so you just knew you were ready. Um, 
that was the only time we would get close to mimicking the actual event. I think the biggest problem with training is people try to mimic the event they are training for, as opposed to bringing up other qualities that, especially qualities that they are lacking. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it was, it's a, an event with a lot of different disciplines, but the, the, the foundation of it was, was your classic strength training, really periodized over time for sure. What do you see, like, as far as you've, you've competed a lot, obviously, you've done a lot of competitive sports, and you've worked with a lot of competitive athletes. What do you typically see in the ones that are most successful? Because we all know that, you know, with a program, you can write the best program in the world, but not everyone is going to benefit from it the same way that another person would. So what do you kind of see as far as that person's mindset, um, as far as that person's overall ability? I think you hit the nail on the head there. You could have the world's greatest program ever written, back completely backed by science and research. But if the athlete doesn't carry out that program to the best of their ability or somewhere close to the best of their ability, I'm not saying you're going to find the perfect athlete because there's no such thing. There's so many variables that go into it. You know, just by talking about sleep and nutrition, you know, if you have an athlete who doesn't sleep great and doesn't eat great, uh, but they train hard. So there's a lot of different variables. But for, for me, it ultimately, ultimately comes down to who's got the heart. Um, who's got the heart, who's got the will, who's got the discipline. Because if, if you have a, a, a pretty well-written program and you have an athlete that, well, number one, has buy-in uh, to what you're about and what you're trying to achieve, understands the long-term goal, um, it, and isn't just looking to be beat down every session. So... Mm-hmm. Number one, I would say, is buy-in from the athlete. They trust the process, which is huge. Uh, two, have they got the heart and the will to just actually do the work, which I think often gets overlooked. You know, you look at a, a CrossFit doesn't get many compliments from people in the fitness world. Um, I think some of those guys are incredible. And you've just got to look at someone like Matt Frazier, who for the last, I think he's won four CrossFit games in a row three or four in a row and has spent the majority of his time training in his basement. Wow. So he's got, he's got the equipment there and he's got the programming, but the will and the heart to go down into the basement of your own house and just push yourself to the absolute physical limits is very rare. And you'll see some of these guys who train at the absolute best facilities in the world. And they'll probably never reach their athletic potential because they just don't have the heart. And on the, other, the opposite end of the spectrum, you see the guys that don't have a lot of talent, but just get there by absolute just will, desire, hard work, um, and, and determination, you know. And I'm, I, everyone listening has got probably got someone on their favorite sports team that they could just point at and say, that's the hard worker. Because they, they aren't great technically. They weren't genetically gifted with the greatest body for the sport they're playing but you know they won't get outworked um and then every once once in a blue moon you get an an athlete like michael jordan come along and he's just got all of those qualities um and i don't know if you guys been watching the last dance but if you haven't watched that you need to watch that because you'll understand exactly what i'm talking about now is that a tv show or what yeah they they followed the chicago bulls in their last year Oh, interesting. Uh, with my, Michael Jordan's last year, basically, in the NBA as a Chicago ball player. 
um, and it just follows him through the season. And it also goes back to when he was drafted in the NBA. It's just a story of how he evolved, how the Bulls organization evolved, the politics. Um, and then you just under, understand what an incredible, incredible uh, athlete he was. But uh, one thing that stood out for me in that show is that they always, they were speaking about how no matter how big the pressure was, Jordan always had Jordan had a, just an amazing skill to be present in the moment and enjoy the moment, um, which is he wasn't in fear of missing a shot. He wasn't thinking about what he'd done before. He was just in the moment all the time. And that's a rare quality. So, You know, people like that are so fascinated with them. You know, you see books on them, you see documentaries and things. But even on a smaller scale, I think you're seeing that now with um, people having to work out at home. You know, they had that mindset in the gym and they had that separate place they went to. They had external motivators. Yep. And you really see that kind of get bridged now where it's like you have to find that internal motivation. You have to force yourself to do something you don't want to so that it comes ingrained as a habit. A hundred percent. Like the, the, the tiny habits add up. There's a, a famous rugby coach uh, who coached England to the World Cup. And uh, Clive Woodward, his name, and he said like, all those small one percenters add up to that hundred percent, right? So when you're talking about getting that extra hour of sleep, making sure you have the right breakfast, making sure you have that glass of water, all these tiny little habits that you start to stack daily, just create this, this uh, solid foundation for, for success in life or performance in the gym or, or just, just, just fueling your desire to, to succeed, you know? So uh, I don't think people succeed just by, um, just by the, the motivation to do it. I used to be a huge believer in motivation, but as I've got older, I've realized it's more about discipline and having great systems, great habits in place that will allow you to succeed. Because I'm sure you can agree. Like I've had, I love training. I love it more than anything, but I've had days where I do not feel like training. At oh, all. absolutely. Yeah. And you want to just put Netflix on and you want to just chill. Right. But you know that that's that day that you go in and put in the work could be the day that, that makes the difference, especially if you've got competitions coming up. Yeah, absolutely. You can't, you can't afford unless obviously you're sick or injured. You know, it's interesting, too, that you say that because you see these people and obviously some people, they're genetically modified, right? Like they have amazing genetics for whatever athletic endeavor they choose. Mm -hmm. Maybe they just have great aesthetics. But you kind of see just like with anything else that people don't people who don't have the best genetics, you can reprogram, you know, because I think genetically some people, they have that internal drive that that mindset and they don't have to necessarily work as hard at that mental aspect, which it's just the same mental and physical, but you'll see people and, um, you know, they, they maybe have more of a predisposition to want to be very sedentary, not want to, you know, really grind. And I think, you know, maybe genetically you're not going to get quite to, you're not getting to Michael Jordan level, but you can still get somewhere. You can find that 50% mark where you feel better, Maybe you lose body fat if that's what you wanted, or you're just performing better in life. 
Yeah, hundred percent agree. Michael Michael Jordan's coaches said what they people would ask like, "What's the difference?" Everyone knows he was genetically gifted for basketball. If you look at the guy's wingspan, his the way his body is built, is he was almost perfect for basketball. But they said it was the fundamental. He was so good at the fundamentals of the game that you take that that like the genetics that you're talking about. And then you you take the motivation, the discipline, and then just the absolute basic fundamentals and you mix all of those together. You just have an absolute super freak on your hands, you know, and that's that's why he's going to be better than ever. And that's why he's going to succeed when he's tired, because he has the fundamentals of the game down. Um, and you look at someone like Tom Brady, uh, one of the probably, if not one of the most successful quarterbacks in NFL history was isn't genetically the best athlete you're ever going to see. If you've ever watched Tom Brady run, you you will just think how the hell is this guy so successful? Nick Winkleman's just just watching it rolling over. Yeah. Yeah, Nick will, yeah, he would probably be like I, I don't know. And that comes to the point where if a guy is that successful, do you need to do you need to make him any more athletic and make him any more uh, any quicker, etc.? It's like you, you, you get to a point where he, I'm not saying the guy shouldn't strength train and shouldn't um, stay in shape, etc. But it's almost that point now where you're like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Let's just keep the guy healthy because, you know, it's, you're talking millions and millions of dollars at that level. You want to keep that guy on the field. So that's where the performance end is very different to the person that's just going to get up and go and work out in their, in their garage, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's 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 a lot more on the line in terms of uh, money for these organisations. Whereas if that person maybe isn't feeling quite motivated that day and they skip their workout, uh, it's only really going to affect them that day. So yeah, yeah very that's interesting. Huge. So you talked about a little bit about Tom Brady. You've talked about Michael Jordan. So I was curious because obviously you're a reader, just like yes. I am, um, and you also enjoy you know podcasts, learning through other different. Um, different mediums, but what do you think as far as continuing to educate yourself or as far as what's impacted your life the most, what are maybe three to five books, podcasts, videos, anything you've seen that's really impact your coaching career, um, impacted you overall as an individual? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of people scoff at those kinds of questions, you know, what books you're reading, but I think books are huge and they, they say a lot about you and, and, um, where where you want to go i think because from what i'm no expert from but from the people that i've seen that are super successful in life they are constantly reading something um and i just think it's a fantastic way to really stimulate the brain and the creative process in your brain because i think right now where we are just constantly involved with technology we're just dumbing our brains down severely because everything's so fast for us now, right? You know, you like, even when you get that, that password or passcode emailed to you, it pops up on your phone now so that you don't even have to remember a four-digit code to enter it into your new, new account you made or whatever. So I, I'm a big believer in books and I'm a big believer in reading. In terms of ones that I think have impacted me a lot, uh, probably Extreme Ownership by Jocko. 
Jocko Willink. Uh, I reg- consistently, regularly listen to uh, Jocko. I just, I just love what that guy's about. Very simple, um, you know, preaches the qualities of discipline and how discipline is going to get you there, not necessarily motivation, as we talked about earlier. And he, he, he pays a lot of respects to uh, the armed forces and military and law enforcement that, you know, keep us safe, which I love. Um, Legacy by James Kerr. If you want to read a book about teamwork and being a good leader in your team, I would really recommend that. That's about the the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team. Uh, some fantastic takeaways in that book for anyone involved in the team. Oh, wow. That's one you don't hear about as often. Oh, yeah. It's, and it's such a fantastic read. Uh, such a great read. Such an easy read. Uh, honestly, of all the books I've read, that one has probably got the most notes, highlighters. Um, what do you call it when you fold the top of the page? Oh, the don't, do- don't, the- <laughs> don't talk about dog earring. Dog ear. I'm a dog ear. There are two kinds bad. of people in the world. I see. This is where I differ. I think when you buy a book, it's yours. You should feel it, smell it. It's like it's in your hands. You should do. You should make get make the most out of that book. Um, but I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, We've had many debates about this. Yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, I, it's funny because as I've gotten as I've got older, I I read less about tr- books about training now and more about human psychology behavior, which I think is still one of the biggest missing pieces in uh, the fitness world. And I wish that training certifications spent way more time or in fact some time um, on human behavior and the psychology that goes into decision making motivation habit forming and stuff so i've never um, done a certification that covered that in any yeah exactly any way shape or form i know and it's all very much it's very you know yes you need to know human anatomy and the energy systems i'm i'm not disputing that you 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 have to have knowledge if you ask your trainer why am i doing this and they can't give you an answer or they give you a very brief answer then maybe that trainer is not the one for you because you should be able to justify to a client or anyone you're training at any time why you are using a particular exercise or protocol um and that day okay um for sure um, Atomic Habits by James Clear has been a huge one for me. Um, it's really based on, you know, how we can start to build consistent daily habits over time. And not just any habits, like good habits that are actually going to lead to some good productivity for you in your life and make your life easier. So that is a, that's a, been a huge influence. You know, then you've got classics like uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, um, The Alchemist. I think uh, I haven't heard a lot of guys talk about this, but I really love uh, the Brene Brown books. What are they? Brene Brown. Oh, she's, yeah. She's fantastic. Um, some fantastic work. Really, really helpful. Um, so I've really enjoyed her books. And she's got one of the best explanations of empathy and sympathy I think I've ever seen. She has a... Uh, it's on YouTube. And... She cut a very long story short. This this character in the video falls down a hole. Mm-hmm. The friend walks past, sees the character in the hole, and says, "Wow, 
that must suck. Uh, I hope you're okay. So that's expressing sympathy for an individual. Then the other friend comes along, sees the friend in the hole, and actually jumps down into the hole and says, basically, hey, I don't know how you're feeling right now, but I'm here for you if you need me. Which, for me, is there's such a big misconception between sympathy and empathy. And I think, you know, and I've done it myself with clients. You know, you sympathize with them, but you don't really empathize. And when I learned to, like, empathize with people, um, that changed the game for me in terms of my coaching. Because coaching is all about building connections with people and then buying into what you're about. So the more you can empathize with people and put yourself in their shoes, you're going to be such a better coach. Because... The first thing that happens as a coach is like, you know, what do you mean you can't do a split squat? You know, and, yeah. and some coaches are just generally shocked that people cannot do a bodyweight squat. When in reality, as you know, most of the people you start to train probably can't do a bodyweight squat very well. And that's where you come and you have to teach them. So empathy is a huge, huge player in, in being a good coach, I think. So I that's where that my reading on that. Yeah, that's where my reading tends to go now. I'm trying to, trying to, um, and I believe me, I'm not saying I don't read anything fitness or health related because I do and I study a lot. But that's where my my uh, focus has been, I would say, over the last couple of years for sure. Yeah, and you definitely, of all the coaches I've I've seen, I definitely see with you that empathy and that ability to connect with people. You know, you'll see you connect with a male, a female, someone who's older, maybe in an elderly population, someone who's a teenager, and you have a really good sense of finding that. And I think that's something definitely that some people are better at naturally. But again, it's something you develop. It's something that you definitely can educate yourself on and and try to develop those skills and really understanding other people. Yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, I, I do think some of it's natural. But at the same time, I do really think it's a skill that you can learn. I think if you're coaching, especially if you're coaching groups or multiple people at the same time, you know, like the semi-private stuff, mm-hmm. you have to be like a chameleon. Um, you know, you're not going to coach John, who's 48, who has his own business, the same as you're going to coach a 19-year-old female volleyball player who's probably super intimidated being there and is a little bit shy, you know, Um and then you've got uh, Mary who comes in 60 years old and just wants to train with no pain, you know. And then you've got the football player who's trying to get into the into get on a college program. And you could have all those those four people in the same hour, right? So you can't talk to them all the same, you know. You have to you have to go up and down between one to ten. You know, the, the football players could, could could come in ten out of ten, and you might have to bring him down to an eight because he's going to get hurt. And then you might have the other person who's a one who's just finished work and is super tired and you might have to just, just G them up a little bit. But if they're a one and you're a 10, it's not going to work. You have to always be, I would, I would say a couple of points within either, either end of the spectrum because you're just going to annoy that person. Um, and I think same that's with a the, mistake a lot of people make with the whole yeah. positivity movement, you know, like if you're yeah. having one of those days, the last thing you need is, you know, Chipper Charlie, just all over the place. You oh, kind of got to find that middle ground. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and as a coach, you should always bring energy, hundred percent. But there's levels to the energy, right? There's people that respond to that high octane, high fiving, 
And there's the guy that's like, do not come near me with that high five. So that might be the polite nod from across the, across the other side of the gym and just a good job, you know? And as a coach, you shouldn't be offended if people don't respond to that style of coaching. You know, if, if you're trying to coach everyone the same way and then you get offended because they don't respond to it, that's not their problem. They are a paying customer of your gym. It's your, your job, your responsibility to find out what makes that person tick. That's what it's your job to find out more about that person and what they do and how they'd like to be coached. And sometimes there's nothing wrong with just asking someone like, hey, like, does it annoy you when I do this? Or, hey, how do you, do you like to be shouted at in class or do you like to be left alone? Or, hey, do you mind, do you, do you mind me pointing out, can I use you as a demonstration for an exercise? You know, just communicate with people um, for sure. Yeah, questions are powerful. Well, Ash, thank you so, so much. I really enjoyed talking to you today and I will definitely be having you on again. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Take it easy.